We're going to be considering once again the doctrines of the Word of God, knowing that the Bible has as its first prophet for people, the first blessing, if we would only read it and take it to heart, doctrine. As Paul is inspired to write Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine and then for reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness and how we ought to live. But the first proof, which, or the first prophet, which people often forget, and even churches, is teaching. Teaching. The church is a teaching church because the Bible is full of teachings, not just uh, sentences, but things that are significant, things that have meaning, that go beneath the surface. And these are the teachings or doctrines of the Word of God. This morning we consider the Lord's Supper, and I'm going to do this in one supper, or excuse me, one sermon. We've been considering the sacraments in general, the doctrines of the sacraments, the holy things and the signs of invisible realities, and the preaching as the central, uh, uh, the central word of God that we would hear first in order to understand the sacraments and to have our faith built up. So now in one Lord's Day, as we rather take a survey of specific aspects of the sacraments, we want to consider the presence of Christ at the Lord's Supper. And that is set forth for us in Lord's Day 30, question and answers 80 through 82. Uh, but especially we want to consider question 80. And it has to do with the polemics of the time of the Reformation, the arguments, the contention, the things that people would fight for at the time uh, when the Protestants were coming out of the Roman Catholic Church. These things mattered then, so they wrote them down. It mattered that you be on the right side of the argument then, and this not just to win an argument, but to have sound doctrine. And so we're glad for this, that the catechism is militant, and it seeks, it, it seeks to instruct us how to earnestly contend for the faith. Also now, with regard to the Lord's Supper, question 80. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the papal mass? And here's the, the most controversial question, I suppose, in the whole of the Heidelberg Catechism. What's the difference between the Supper and the Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us first that we have complete forgiveness of all our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he, accomplished, he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. And second, that through the Holy Spirit we are grafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of God, uh, of the Father, and this is where he wants to be worshipped. But the Mass teaches, first, that the living and the dead do not have forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ unless he is still offered for them daily by the priests. And second, that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine and there is to be worshipped. Therefore, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. That's the question 
and the aspect of the doctrine of the supper on which we'd focus today. And we want to do that, of course, in light of the Bible. We're grounding all of our sermons and doctrines in the truth of the Bible, which is the sole ground of true doctrine and pious living. So let's turn to the Bible now, see what that says about the presence of Christ in the Holy Supper and always. John chapter 6 is the chapter on which we'd focus and um, draw our attention to as we would consider the doctrine of the presence of Christ. So John chapter 6, Jesus has just fed the 5,000 plus women and children on a mountain, maybe in a plain on the mountain. And in verse 26, he starts preaching the sermon on what the significance was of his feeding 5,000 miraculously and who the significance of himself is. At this time, there's much controversy. May, Lord, may the Lord use this for our blessing. John 6, 26, we'll read through verse uh, 51. Jesus answered and said, and they're, they're asking, why'd you come here? He answered and said, most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, and you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent to me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Thus far we read Jesus' amazing sermon explaining to many who were not happy with him the significance of his miracle. And it's all about the word of God and the gospel of the presence of Jesus and our nourishment and life in him. Jesus, in John 6, at the occasion of his having a supper on a mountain, you can look at that in the early verses of John 6, would teach now what that meant. And he would teach so that people would believe on him and be pointed away from earthly bread to Jesus, the living bread. Basically, what he says in this sermon is that instead of mere bread and fishes and drink, Jesus provides himself. And when Jesus provides himself, this is providing true life. And this is appropriated, of course, as he says, by faith. And it's all about who Jesus is and what he gives and how we are to appropriate that. At this time in John 6, it's a turning point in the whole history of Jesus' ministry. At this time, as we've We've discussed this before and heard preached. Many went away from him. They were stumbling over Jesus. And it was all about what he's about. And that is, he himself would draw attention to himself and nothing else and different than what he gives in the true covenant embrace of God. He gives life. He gives and draws people to the Father through him And to eat and drink Christ is to enjoy a life eternal with God. But many don't like this, and only a few are are enabled to follow him still, even though many go away. But the time of the Reformation, and also now, there is much confusion about this sacred sacrament of what John is speaking about in John 6. Eating and drinking Christ who's at the supper and officiating at it, that we might eat and drink him in the supper. Much confusion, much controversy, much bloodshed, much needless controversy, but much good polemic and church militant wielding the sword of the word that we might have and recover the truth of the supper and ourselves know something about the real presence of Christ, and real discipleship. That's what I'd focus with you on for a few minutes, and that is the real presence of Christ and getting real. You're going to be challenged in this sermon about getting real, not just with regard to this doctrine and this thing that occurs called this sacrament, but with regard to our living out of the presence of Christ and in it, all of our lives. So the real presence, here's the issue. Is Christ in the supper or not? 
Is he really in the supper? Is he really and literally in the supper and physically in the supper or not? Is his body, when we break the bread, actually broken again? Is his blood, when we pour out the wine signifying his blood, is that literally poured out so that it's poured out again? Is there, in other words, another repetition of the sacrifice of Jesus who died and broke his body on the cross and shed his blood in the Mass? That's the issue between the Protestants and the Roman Catholics, and it is even today. The Roman Catholic view is set forth in 1215 A.D., for you historian buffs and church history buffs. 1215 A.D., the Fourth Lateran Council was set forth the doctrine, big word, of transubstantiation meaning in a word that when the elements are distributed when they are consecrated by the priest there's an actual transference uh, from the earthly thing into the Christ himself so that when the priest consecrates the, br- the, the bread it is turned into as a transubstance or a change of substance into the literal, physical body of Jesus. When the priest consecrates the wine and says, this uh, cup of the, this blood of the new covenant is shed for you and for many, there is a transference of substance so that the physical elements become the physical uh, wine and blood of Jesus. That means there's a sacrifice. It's not a bloody one. They don't go that far and say that Jesus died and, and, and shed his blood again. But it is a, it's, it's pictured in the sacrament and it's real. It's an unbloody sacrifice for atonement so that to partake of the supper is necessary or the mass is necessary regularly so that our sins can continually be forgiven and that bloodshed or that that sacrifice of atonement be offered. This is the issue. And what they'll say is, and they'll find proof, they say, they'll say, when Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you, and this is my blood, which is shed for you, and all the Gospels contain that, well, then he meant it. Literally, this is my body. This is my blood. Is, 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 isn't it? They'll say. They'll even cite John 6 as a proof for what they're contending in their supper doctrine, their their mass. And they'll say, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, this, and, and if you eat me, you shall never die, this is a reference to this literal physical presence in the supper. So they'll try to define grist for their doctrinal mill. Well, beloved, This is wrong, of course, because it's a foolish, witless, though clever interpretation of the Scripture. The Bible itself is the ground for our understanding doctrines and practices, and it ought to be. And yes, we take much of the Bible literally, but when there's a crass literalism that equates what Jesus says, this is my body, 
with his saying, this is my physical body that's going to be broken again and again, that's way too far. It's not what Jesus means. In fact, when Jesus, the night he was betrayed and instituted the supper and said, this is my body, this is my blood, was holding out things, blood, uh, or, or he was holding out wine, a cup of wine, and, uh, and, uh, and bread, in distinction from himself, so that there is a distinction the Savior makes, even what he says this is, guiding the church to understand this means my bread, and this means my body, this means my blood. It not, it's not literally and physically what he's intending by the supper, and to be replicated every time the supper is performed. This is crass literalism the Roman Catholics follow. It is not the word of God. Now, when Jesus says this is, he's simply meaning this signifies. Just like when he says Herod is a fox. He doesn't mean, children, that Herod, that wicked Herod, had a bushy tail or a nose like a fox. He meant Herod is like a fox. Herod is all that foxiness and cleverness and subtlety stands for. When the Bible says that Jesus is the door, doesn't mean he has a doorknob on it or hinges. He is the door, that is, the way to the Father and to fellowship in the sheepfold of God. So exactly when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, he's saying this means, this will signify my body, and my blood. And as often as you do it, you do it in remembrance of me. So there is this important distinction between uh, one interpretation that just says is, 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 and doesn't understand the context and the significance, and a biblical interpretation even of is, the word is. And so in the context, understanding what Jesus is intending, we're saying is means here, it signifies, it is symbolic of, it's a seal of the reality underneath it. And that's what sacraments are all about. It's striking that the Roman Catholics don't say of baptism, which symbolizes the blood of Jesus and the washing of the Holy Spirit, they don't say of baptism that the water turns into the blood of Jesus. I don't know why. They're inconsistent. But here they stand. One of the reasons they stand on this, and maybe the, the significant ones, is to perpetuate their idea of ministry. Their idea of ministry is that there's priests, like yours truly would be, according to them, though I'd have to have a vow of celibacy. No way that's going to happen. And what they do is perpetuate, in other words, the office of the priesthood. Well, priests need a sacrifice. And so there you have it. In the Mass, there's this sacrifice repeated by the priest, and there is an awful lot of power through this. That's why the priesthood is so uh, authoritative, and the papacy is in the Roman Catholic Church. They have a sacrifice, even Jesus, to offer, and salvation to give, and atonement to be replicated, and a... Uh, a leverage for the people of God to attend the Mass and give their money and give their support. Why? Because Calvary's coming to town. 
And there is this amazing worship that goes on of Jesus present literally when the priest holds up the wafer, as it were, or, or the wine. Or when the Pope comes and he raises the wafer and the mass in the parade so that people bow down. That's worship. Whatever they want to say about the distinctions in worship, that's what they're doing. And that's why the Reformers call the Mass an accursed idolatry. And they were right on. Now, many today want to rid the language of the Catechism of that phrase, that the Mass is accursed idolatry because they want to be friends with Rome. And for many other reasons, they want to be friends with Rome, and so they want to soften the language. I point out to you, beloved, that Rome itself hasn't softened its language with regard to what it thinks of Protestants. And in the Council of Trent, and I can show you the reference there, and this was in the 1500s to, to counter the Protestants, Rome said that if you do not believe as we do, that these are the physical, uh, this is the physical presence of Christ and that he's offered again and again in the Mass, you ought to be cursed. In fact, it says, let them be anathema. Let the Protestants be anathema. They anathematize the whole Protestant religion, even though of late and since the Second Vatican Council, they'd say we're not just reprobate, we're just erring brethren but still anathema, still anathematized, still cursed. So they're waging the war. Beloved, we ought to wage the war and come back at them with the word of God. With the plain interpretation of the scripture, Jesus obviously is meaning that he's present in another way than the physical, literal way. Well, I could go on with the Lutheran view and um, this is a kind of a compromise view. But let, let us set forth here the true view of the presence of Christ in the supper. Because we, do, we do want to say that. Jesus is present with us in the supper. Has to be. For one reason, he said in his promise, I'm going away, but lo, I'm with you always. He said in his promise, he'll be therefore with us in the supper. So he can't be absent with us in the supper. He can't be absent with us in the prison. He can't be absent from us uh, in our day-to-day living. He's got to be present. But in the supper, is there a special way that Jesus is present? That's what we want to wrestle with now. And I would submit to you, yes. And I think the Bible teaches that as well in that language, sacramental language of his. Luther was stuck on this. In fact, that's why he kept from the the Reformed and other aspects of the Reformation because he believed that Jesus is present literally, not as the elements, but with them and in them and under them. Consubstantiation. But the Protestants say, no, that's not true. That can't be true. Jesus cannot be with us physically. Why? He's in heaven. 
You see, one doctrine of the supper is affected to all of the other doctrines as well. And that's what we teach here. It's all one beautiful tapestry is the word of God. One doctrine doesn't compromise another or contradict another. And so here, if we want to interpret the, the Bible as teaching that Christ is present in the supper, and we must, we cannot say he's here physically because he's in heaven at the right hand of God in his body. And he will return at the end of time in his body, but not till then. And so, what does it mean? What does it mean if we don't want to compromise either the doctrines, the other doctrines, or the truth that Jesus is in the supper somehow? Well, basically, beloved, he's in the supper, we would say, first of all, in the same way he's with us at all times, and that's in his word. And when the word of God is reached and uh, preached and when it is repeated what Jesus did when he instituted the supper, this is my, the cup of my uh, new covenant and this is my body which is broken for you, then he's there. Jesus is always where the word is proclaimed, explained, and read. But then he's there by his Holy Spirit as well and by his grace as our catechism in another sense says he's always with us in his word, in his spirit, and in his grace. But now in the supper, as in baptism, but here in the supper we're focusing on that, Jesus is with us in a way we call sacramental. There's a holy thing here. Of two things only did Jesus say we are to remember him by and repeat over and over again till he comes. Those are the sacraments of baptism, for initiation into the covenant, and the supper for a meal, for pilgrims on the way, for you and for me. At this, he promises that as we remember him, he's going to be with us in a special way. This is the language of the is. This is my body. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. No other way to explain it than to say this is what he means. This is my, I am real here for you. There's a spiritual, real presence of the body and blood of Christ, not physically real, but as real, nevertheless, as the nose on your face, as the hair on your head, and as this church building. This is my body. I'm telling you that. This is what this means. I am with you always and, and to the end of the world as you participate in this supper and eat and drink him. Now, the Protestants don't go any further than that. This whole idea of trying to explain how heaven meets earth that whole truth and that mystery is what we're all about in the Christian church until all eternity trying to figure out. There's a mystery in sacraments, a revelation, but something beyond. It's a holy thing, we know that. And Jesus has said, now you do this. But we don't quite get it, do we? How is Jesus here? and not here in his blood like we know reality to be. And this is the point of my sermon here. How, how can it be that he's here speaking a word through a man and through a written word 
and then through a sacrament. How can it be? Well, great is the mystery of godliness. God is manifest in the flesh and in the church and in the preaching and in the supper. Great is the mystery of godliness. And we leave it there. We don't try to explain away the mysteries or to explain them according to our logic as if they're only going to have significance if we can see it and replicate it. This was the problem in John. The people saw Jesus. They were fed. They were full. And they wanted more of that Jesus who fed them so they were full. They had an idea. The idea that prevailed at that time, this Jesus, he's going to be like Caesar. He's going to be better than Caesar. He's going to overthrow Caesar. And we are going to have the messianic kingdom of Solomon and David all over again. This is what they saw in Jesus. A man like themselves, a king like another earthly king. And they missed his true presence among them. And what he would do on the cross and the kind of kingdom he would establish and what the supper then that he would institute means. Beloved, let's just be practical and real at this point. Continue to be. Our problem ours. It's not with the Roman Catholics, first of all. That seems like a long-ago battle, doesn't it? Maybe, maybe, to wrestle with this. And there are a billion strong, they tell us, Roman Catholics still. They're all fooled by the folly of Rome. And they're all engaging in this idolatry mindlessly. They don't even know what they're doing. It's hocus-pocus, as they call it. But the real problem is the absence of Christ generally. Not, it's not a matter of the presence of Christ, particularly in the supper. Our problem, yours and mine, is the absence of Christ in our lives generally. And I want to exhort us all, myself first, that the devil is in the details of our life if Christ is not and present as the life force and the presence that he is as our Savior and our Lord. How have you been this past week? How, how are we doing? Are we going to get Jesus' sermon, this one in John 6, and now the one he preaches even through little old me, about his presence and about eating and drinking Christ and about this doctrine and this doctrinal debate and polemic with Roman Catholics and Lutherans and Reformed of all kind? Are we going to understand that? And apply that and not just be puffed up in our minds and be able to, to, to defeat all people at a single bound and a single argument? 
then we must know the presence of Christ. And so that he's not absent in any of our life. The mass is an accursed idolatry. That's true. The mass of men have other idols. And it all has to do with them not understanding that God has come in the flesh in Jesus and we eat and drink the, the body and the blood of the Son of God by faith or we are idolaters. And our nourishment is in Christ or we're just being fed with this world. And forget all of the arguments. Forget all the debates. Forget all of the preaching of the whole counsel of God if we're not making whole Christians of God. Beloved, I fear there's a real absence of Christ in our lives. He's speaking here to the disciples, and most will go away. They don't get it. And one of them who stays is a devil. What about with us? And with a sermon like this, there's some some heavy polemics and heavy hitting, but hopefully there's heartfelt exhortation that's given with a heart and received with a heart so that Christ becomes more of our life. That's the point of this sermon, getting real with the real presence of Jesus. In supper, yes, we're talking about that doctrine. That's important. And in all of our life, in appropriating Christ and eating and drinking in him and and something that's not given us to do except to be given us to God, uh, by God. No one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. By the way, this is one of the verses, verse 44, that convinced me of the truth of Calvinism and of the Reformed faith, the doctrines of grace. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Isn't that amazing? No one can come to me of his own free will. No one can come to me willing and working his way to come to me and to earn a place with me in heaven. The Father must draw me. This turned on the light for me. And beloved, it all has to do with this presence of Jesus. The Father draws you to come to the Father through Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, the bread of life, which to eat is life eternal, which to ignore and to spit out. Is death eternal? Are we getting real? As the word is brought. And then Sunday to Sunday. And then we have real nourishment. That's my second point. If we're getting his real presence in the supper, not only, but in life, generally, believing him, there's real nourishment, too. He's the true bread and wine, the catechism says. And we take him in. Now, in the various Lord's Days, 28, 29, 30, we're reminded that the supper is where Christ teaches us of himself, teaches us of his sacrifice for sin. The bread is broken. Children, that means Jesus was broken in half. Not his bones, but he died. No bones were broken, but he died. And as the 
wine is poured out, that means His blood was poured out for you and for me. And that's what that means. That's what that signifies. There's a sacramental truth to which we're drawn by that teaching of the sacrament and Jesus through it. Then there's this comforting uh, uh, emphasis as well. The supper is for our comfort. As real as we eat and drink this bread and the wine, so we eat and drink Christ. He's here. He's feeding us. And even though it's a little crumb, that's all you get. A little wine, that's all you get. That's enough. Amazing? For many reasons, the Lord's Supper has been called the Festival of Fools. Uh, What are you doing? Early Romans and others who'd slander the Christian religion would say, Psst, they're cannibals over there. They're eating and drinking their Savior. They think they are. They're fools. And how can we be nourished with just a little bread and just a little wine? Oh, beloved, here's the the meaning of that. A little of Jesus is all you need. But that's not all you get. You get the whole Jesus. You think of what that means. Do this in remembrance of me. Here he says, and here's what he's explaining. You believe in me. You you come to me. You eat me. You drink me. And you live. And take that... In all of its instruction, beloved, we eat and drink bread and wine and other things. What happens to it? Children, you know what happens to all that stuff that goes in your mouth? Whether it has gluten or doesn't, it goes into your mouth, it goes into your digestive system, and it goes into you. Now, some of it's waste, but... Much of it's used to empower your hands and your mind, you think. And you can breathe and your heart ticks and so on. And you live. It becomes your life. It's assimilated into you. This is the picture. Jesus is being radical here. And that's why people think we're cannibals and, and the Jews couldn't get it. Eat and drink me, he says. Don't eat and drink the world because... When you drink, eat and drink the world, you become worldly. But eat and drink me, and you will become like me. And let's, let's understand that. All of Jesus goes into us. Think of this. His human nature. He has a human nature. His humanity goes into us. His divinity. Now your ears should perk up. Almost sounds like heresy. Peter, 1 Peter 1, verse 4, I think, reminds us that we are made partakers of the divine nature. Now, we don't become gods, 
but there's something of the whole Christ and he's one divine person joining to himself a human and a divine nature. We drink him in and we eat him up. And he becomes our life more and more and our strength and our all. His mind, we have his mind now. Part of him, no, can't separate him. He goes into our mind and he transforms it by the spirit and by the word and by his presence. And this is signified in the supper. He is the strength so that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We can control the temper. We can prophesy truth instead of lying and being a coward. All that. The whole Christ. That's how we're nourished. Now, it's not automatic. And some of the other Lord's days on the supper, just as with baptism, remind us, sacraments are not automatic. So you eat and drink, and there you go. No, it's about the Spirit working through the things and through the stuff. Not automatic. So that you actually appropriate it by faith. You believe and and you love this God and you love his provision. That's real. Are you nourished? Are we fed together by Jesus at the supper and all the time? This is the lesson and the nourishment of the supper. And finally, for real disciples, this has been what the message has been all about. It's for those who would feast on him continually, isn't it? If we would be real disciples, there's an article in this Lord's Day that speaks about who can come to the table, who are to be admitted to the table, questions 81 and 82. Well, beloved, are we to come to the table and to be admitted to the table? Only those who are real. Are we real Christians or are we fake? Should we just go home and say, forget it, I'm I'm not a true Christian. And if my sins rise up against me, have I really eaten and drunk Christ? Am I getting him and getting real and becoming real, finding my identity in this this world that has gone crazy. They don't know who they are. Are we those who know who we are, not who we are on our own, but who we are in Christ so that we say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Male or female, Jew or Gentile, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That's my identity. That's yours. Children and young people, don't ever let anyone say to you, no, you've got to discover your identity. Reassess your sex and your biology and your whole significance in life. Don't let them say that. That's the devil talking. The Word of God says, the I am that I am is who you are. That is, you are who you are in him. And that's peace and joy and life forevermore. And the presence of Christ at the supper signifies he's the presence of God in this earth. He's the presence of God on Calvary. He's broken for us. He's the presence of God who left the tomb 
the Son of God, is at the right hand of God and now with us in word and sacrament, in the fellowship of the saints. Lo, I'm with you always. When two or three are gathered, I'm answering your prayers. I'm with you to celebrate your anniversaries, with you to celebrate the birth of your children, the growth of the young people, the additions to the church. So let's show it, shall we? And so much could be said of this. I just want to leave us with one word, and that's hope. The supper, Jesus said, was for many things, and one of them was hope. Do this in remembrance of me, he said. Look back. And as often as you remember this, you do show the Lord's death till he come. There was an element of hope there. And that's what this meal does. It gives us hope in a future supper. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb and his bride, the church. Heaven. That meal. And reminds us of the provision that he is in the transitory life that we lead. And as we grow older and the pains mount and we're reminded of our mortality, he reminds us he's our life forevermore. He's the vigor of our life forevermore. He's the hope of our glory through his passion, through his glory. So we participate all the benefits of his cross and his resurrection. That's the presence of Christ now and forever. Just one more thing. It used to be, so it goes, that the Jews would say when they celebrated the Passover, which symbolizes Christ, Lord's Supper, he is our Passover. The Jews would come to Jerusalem and Then they go away, and this would only be celebrated once a year. And so they wouldn't meet their other brethren from other tribes or the same tribe for a long time because they didn't have cars and they didn't have Internet, Facebook, and Twitter and all that stuff. So it was a significant emotional time, and they realized their communion centered around Jerusalem. And so after the Passover and their parting ways and one going that way and one going that way, they'd say, see you next year in Jerusalem. See you next year with God. In the meantime, go with God. So I say to you, beloved brothers and sisters, I'll see you next year in Jerusalem. In the meantime, let's go with God and in his presence, now and forevermore. Amen. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us and keep us in your your palm and knowing your presence always to comfort and to cheer and to guide us in our way and to rebuke us when we need. Lord, we pray for nourishment on the way and that this word, however however preached in weakness, may be mighty to remind us of the one thing that matters, you with us and we with you. We feasting on you, Lord, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.